Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to TLS Voices, an occasional series of readings brought to you by The Times Literary Supplement. I'm Michael Keynes. Two 17th century poets provide the inspiration for this latest episode of TLS Voices, one of them categorised by T.S. Eliot as the archetypal minor poet, the other largely unknown as a poet at all, but long celebrated for another kind of writing. In their different ways, both are among the most attractive, interesting figures of the period. Robert Herrick, the first of these poets, was born in 1591. He grew up in London and was apprenticed to his uncle, a goldsmith, only to abandon that trade before he got stuck in it and go up to Cambridge instead. He took holy orders in 1623 and eventually gained a living in Devon at Dean Prior on the edge of Dartmoor. A great friend and a great admirer of Ben Jonson, Herrick had a reputation as a poet well before he published his only collection of verse, Hesperides, in 1648. He died in 1674. Hesperides represents a lifetime's work. It contains some 1,400 lyrics, including 272 religious verses. But, as Paul Davis pointed out in last week's TLS, barely three dozen of them are more than 50 lines long, and the majority are no more than two quatrains long. Herrick had what Davis calls a uniquely gargantuan appetite for the miniature, in subject as well as form, for ants and apple cores, beetles and beets, spiders and single tears. F.R. Leavis dismissed all that as trivially charming, while T.S. Eliot could contrast Hesperides with The Temple, seeing in George Herbert's collection a book constructed according to a plan. We come to find that there is something we get from the whole book, Eliot argued, which is more than a sum of its parts. Eliot does not mention Hesperides by its classically resonant name, I note, as he airs the view that there is no continuous conscious purpose about Herrick's poems. For Eliot, this is just a purely natural and unselfconscious man writing his poems as the fancy seizes him. That was back in 1944. 
Later critics have sought to refute Eliot's charge by detecting signs of order in Herrick's book. But in a recent collection of essays about Hesperides, Catherine Eisenman Mouse pulls the rug from under everybody's feet by suggesting that the seeming triviality of Herrick's miniature verses and the seeming lack of organisation in Hesperides are in fact signs of his intelligent scepticism about the value of goal-oriented ambition. Not for Herrick, the vain seeking after glittering prizes, the emulation of epic forms, and so on. An alternative classical model informs the shape and variety of Hesperides. It is a silver a forest, a poetic collection in which variety, digressions, cross-currents, thwart our expectation of, our desire for, a continuous narrative. And perhaps this strategy thwarts us in our desire to separate poets into major and minor figures as well, into the heliconian types worthy of canonization and the trivially charming others. Herrick requires us to ask instead why we need this distinction in the first place. Paul Davis's review essay on Herrick appears in the January 16th issue of the TLS, which is still available via the TLS app. And its immediate subject is the complete poems of Robert Herrick, edited by Tom Kane and Ruth Connolly, and published by Oxford University Press. The grand scale of this new edition of the miniaturist Herrick contrasts with the current status, the barely visible reputation, of the second poet whose work I'm going to read, John Evelyn, better known as one of the greatest of the English diarists. Evelyn was born almost 30 years after Herrick in 1620, and his reputation rests on his diary. But the word Eisenman Mouse applies to Herrick's oeuvre can be applied to Evelyn's as well. Biodiversity. He was a founder member of the Royal Society. He wrote on subjects ranging from mechanics and mathematics to architecture and sculpture, in 1661, he proposed a solution to the problem of air pollution, the assiduous invasion of the London atmosphere caused by coal fires. He compiled the massive Elysium Britannicum, considered by some to be the most important unpublished document in English garden history, until it, somewhat posthumously, made it into print in the year 2000. He wrote one play, and also, seemingly throughout his life, much poetry. In next week's TLS, Stuart Gillespie of the University of Glasgow offers a much richer account of the last of these literary activities, Evelyn's poetry, than I can give here. For now, here's one of Evelyn's poems that we'll be printing in full, his lament for his beloved, brilliant daughter Mary, who died of smallpox at the age of 19 in March 1685. Addressed to her silenced harpsichord, with passing notes for her music teachers, Signors Bartolomeo and Pietro. Evelyn's poem, On My Dear Child, M.E., strikes me as a restoration ancestor of W.H. Auden's injunction for us to stop all the clocks and silence the pianos at a time of mourning. I think it provides a melancholy cross-current to the mellifluous Herrick, and in particular to the love lyrics with which I'm going to begin. To Anthea, who may command him anything. Bid me to live, and I will live thy Protestant to be. Or bid me love, and I will give a loving heart to thee. A heart as soft, a heart 
as kind, a heart as sound and free, as in the whole world thou canst find, that heart I'll give to thee. Bid that heart stay, and it will stay, to honour thy decree, or bid it languish quite away, and shall do so for thee. Bid me to weep, and I will weep, while I have eyes to see, and having none, yet I will keep a heart to weep for thee. Bid me despair, and I'll despair, under that cypress tree, or bid me die, and I will dare e'en death to die for thee. Thou art my life, my love, my heart, the very eyes of me, and hast command of every part to live and die for thee. Upon Julia's Clothes When as in silks my Julia goes, then, then methinks how sweetly flows that liquefaction of her clothes. Next, when I cast mine eyes and see that brave vibration each way free, oh, how that glittering taketh me. To Sylvia to wed, let us, though late, at last, my Sylvia, wed, and loving lie in one devoted bed. Thy watch may stand, my minutes fly post-haste, no sound calls back the year that once is past. Then, sweetest Sylvia, let's no longer stay. True love, we know, precipitates delay. Away with doubts, all scruples hence remove. No man at one time can be wise and love. The bad season makes the poet sad. Dull to myself and almost dead to these, my many, fresh, and fragrant mistresses, lost to all music now, since everything puts on the semblance here of sorrowing. Sick is the land to the heart, and doth endure more dangerous faintings by her desperate cure. But if that golden age would come again, and Charles here rule, as he before did reign, if smooth and unperplexed the seasons were, as when the sweet Maria livered here, I should delight to have my curls half-drowned in Tyrian dews and head with roses crowned. And once more yet, ere I am laid out dead, knock at a star with my exalted head. Upon Parson Beans Old Parson Beans hunts six days of the week, and on the seventh he has his notes to seek. Six days he hollows so much breath away that on the seventh he can nor preach or pray. His return to London, from the dull confines of the drooping west, to see the day spring from the pregnant east, ravished in spirit I come, nay more, I fly to thee blessed place of my nativity. Thus, thus with hallowed foot I touch the ground, with thousand blessings by thy fortune crowned. O fruitful genius, that bestowest here an everlasting plenty, year by year. O place, O people, manners framed to please all nations, customs, kindreds, languages, I am a free-born Roman. Suffer then that I amongst you live a citizen. 
London my home is, though by hard fate sent into a long and irksome banishment. Yet since called back, henceforward let me be, O native country, repossessed by thee. For rather than I'll to the west return, I'll beg of thee first here to have mine urn. Weak I am grown, and must in short time fall. Give thou my sacred relics burial. His farewell to sack. Farewell, thou thing, time past so known, so dear to me as blood to life and spirit, near, nay, thou more near than kindred, friend, man, wife, male to the female, soul to the body, life to quick action, or the warm, soft side of the resigning, yet resisting bride, the kiss of virgins, first fruits of the bed, soft speech, smooth touch, the lips, the maidenhead. These and a thousand sweets could never be so near or dear as thou wast once to me. O thou, the drink of gods and angels, wine that scatterst spirit and lust, whose purest shine more radiant than the summer's sunbeam shows, each way illustrious, brave, and like to those comets we see by night, whose shagged portents foretell the coming of some dire events, or some full flame which with a pride aspires, throwing about his wild and active fires. Tis thou, above nectar, O divinest soul, eternal in thyself, that canst control that which subverts whole nature, grief and care, vexation of the mind and damned despair. Tis thou alone who with thy mystic fan workest more than wisdom, art or nature can to rouse the sacred madness and awake the frost-bound blood and spirits and to make them frantic with thy raptures flashing through the soul like lightning and as active too. Tis not Apollo can, or those thrice three Castalian sisters sing, if wanting thee. Horace, Anacreon, both had lost their fame, hadst thou not filled them with thy fire and flame. Phoebean splendour, and thou, Thespian spring, of which sweet swans must drink before they sing their true paced numbers and their holy lays, which makes them worthy cedar and the bays. But why, why longer do I gaze upon thee with the eye of admiration, since I must leave thee, and enforced must say to all thy witching beauties, Go away. But if thy whimpering looks do ask me why, then know that nature bids thee go, not I. Tis her erroneous self has made a brain uncapable of such a sovereign as is thy powerful self. Prithee not smile, or smile more inly, lest thy looks beguile my vows denounced in zeal, which thus much show thee, that I have sworn but by thy looks to know thee. Let others drink thee freely and desire thee and their lips espoused, while I admire and love thee, but not taste thee. Let my muse fail of thy former helps and only use her inadulterate strength. What's done by me hereafter shall smell of the lamp, not thee. To find God, 
Weigh me the fire, or canst thou find a way to measure out the wind? Distinguish all those floods that are mixed in that watery theatre, and taste thou them as saltless there, as in their channel first they were. Tell me the people that do keep within the kingdoms of the deep, or fetch me back that cloud again, beshivered into seeds of rain. Tell me the moats, dust, sands, and spears of corn when summer shakes his ears. Show me that world of stars and whence they noiseless spill their influence. This if thou canst, then show me him that rides the glorious cherubim. On my dear child, M.E. Elegy to her harpsichord by John Evelyn. Peace, mournful instrument, let none e'er touch thee more now she is gone. Let none a pleasing song recite, or that may give the ear delight. May nothing thee henceforth become but the sad epicedium, and numbers which soft passions move for long pursuit and fruitless love. Thy muse is fled, sad elegy, and tristia belong to thee. Methinks thou seemest before mine eyes a coffin dressed for obsequies. Funeral dirge, dim tapers thee best suit, and with thy shape agree. Let none then skilled at graves to weep in artful tears of sorrows deep, who mercenary throbbings feign our undissembled mourning stain. He who is lost an only child, or from dear country is exiled. He who has lost a virtuous wife, the sweet companion of, of his life, or all in one to comprehend. He who has lost a steady friend, whom he did love as his own soul. With me let him our loss condole for such a daughter. Let him hear on every chord let fall a tear, and in sad accents of remorse mourn perfectly our common loss. How oft didst thou, sweet creature, hear thy father's serious studies cheer? How oft severer thoughts divert, and in seraphic airs impart chaste songs and sacred hymns indite, for such were only thy delight. With what a grace used she to sing, how free, how clear her voice, each string, each key she touched, did seeming strive to answer her recitative. But her sweet note so far outwent the voice of strings and instrument, so soft, so liquid, so distinct was every accent, and so linked to all she sung and what we hear, as charmed all sense into the ear. Mourn, Bartolomeo, Pedro, mourn, your harmony to discords turn. Who now shall your composures trace? Who sing them with such skill, such grace? And soft Italia's melting notes, for song best made and warbling throats, and now she's gone, your fame improve. Would you know whither gone? Above. She who was wont to touch these strings, now in a choir of angels, sings. Alleluia.
This week's TLS features Robert Burns' Beyond Burns Night, the letters of an ever-youthful Samuel Beckett, Susan Sontag and herself, the poems of Antonella Nedda in English, the life and death of the real Mrs Dalloway, and much more. For a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.